0: is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. He needs to leave now. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in from Los Angeles, California. Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more with your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. All
1: right, this is Trevor. And on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 202, this time around. You are hanging out with the outstanding writer-director, Keith Thomas. You'll be part of a conversation about his tremendous new horror film, the Vigil. At time of release, it opens in select theaters, digital, and VOD February 26th. It is a beautiful movie, a symphony of uneasiness and tension. It's a stunning meditation on grief and fear. Hear about what went into cultivating these moments, crafting the sounds, how he managed to put the viewer so deeply into the story, and so much more. Also find out what he has in store for you as the creator behind the upcoming Stephen King adaption for Firestarter that he is attached to and the possibility of building The Vigil into a franchise. Thank you so much for being here with us. It's episode 202 with Keith Thomas, and it starts now. There's something evil in this house. We have to go now. It
2: won't let you leave. What won't let me leave? If you run out, the magic will make you crawl right back.
0: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy.
1: Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is a fantastic and visionary writer-director. His short, Arcane, was released in 2017. It stands as a calling card of a filmmaker with an incredibly poignant, visceral attack and a mastery of weaponizing sound, lighting, and elegant storytelling to bring us to our knees in fear. His debut feature length is a deeper exploration into his unique gifts. It made its debut at TIFF in the Midnight Madness section in 2019 and amassed substantial acclaim and is now one of the most anticipated horror films of 2021. Taking place in one creepy house over one night, it follows a man who accepts an offer from a rabbi to watch over the body of a deceased member of their community before their burial as a part of a Jewish tradition. Starring Dave Davis and Lynn Cohen, it is called The Vigil. At time of release, it opens in select theaters, digital and VOD, February 26th. We are honored to welcome its creator. Keith Thomas. Yeah. Yay. yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. And con- Such a nice intro. Oh, wow. Well, hey, well-deserved, man. And congrats on the <laughs> yes. next part of the journey of this amazing film. And as I said, we loved it so much. We want to first dive in to sure. your personal history with the horror genre as a viewer. Mm. What mm-hmm. is What is the very first memory you have of being impacted by horror? Probably the very, you know, so there's some like weird little uh, snippets
2: of memory that go back when I was a little kid catching stuff on TV. I remember there's a really, obs- I mean, it's not as obscure anymore, but it was very obscure. A movie called The Pit in yeah. like the late 70s, like a kid who feeds people to troglodytes in a hole, like in the woods. <laughs> yeah. And I remember catching a part of that. I was like at my grandparents house in New Jersey, and that was weird and freaky and stayed with me. I was in England and I just happened to turn on TV and see the last 20 minutes of Dario Argento's Phenomena. And that, if you've seen the last 20 minutes of Dario Argento's Phenomena, you'll never forget it. And so that was all I'd seen. And so that was incredible. But the real, the first time I saw a film that really spoke to me in horror was probably Alien. And I was maybe 10, somewhere in there. And uh, I was just obsessed with it. It's just, I wanted to live on that ship. And I just love that that world and the atmosphere and just the the feel. It's 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 funny. A lot whenever I look at the vigil now, I see there's one particular moment in Alien that is just locked into my head, and that is you know the moment when we first encounter the alien in the room of chains. It's like the Hellraiser room with the dripping water and stuff. And of course, there's a little cat scare before the alien comes down. But the first the the head of that scene is a dolly shot through the doors into the chain room. And it's just this the color and the atmosphere that just that 10 second scene is amazing. And so that that 10 seconds is kind of what I tried to do with the vigil is set that up
1: what would you say are some of the horror films that, or maybe one in particular that became your gateway into becoming a filmmaker yourself? A a, Mm. a, a bit of the films that gave you the confidence or in the very least the ambition to go out and explore your own voice.
2: Yeah. You know, the films of Junet and Caro, which were delicatessen in, I don't remember when that was 97 or whatever. And then the city of lost children in 1999 while probably not considered horror films, they're definitely horrific in their own weird way. They just had such a sense of voice, like just such a strong, powerful voice to them that they felt like they came in from another world. And I just, I love that about them. So seeing that and seeing, wow, it's capable, people capable of taking this thing in their head that might be so outlandish, outrageous and actually making it. That to me was super inspiring. And it was kind of one of those things like I had seen that in New York and it was like in a little upstate theater. And I was just kind of I walked out. I remember distinctly walking out of City of Lost Children and kind of into the night and looking up at the night sky and thinking, wow, you really it is kind of limitless. You can you can actually do these things. Are there any recent horror films that you've been impacted by? Yeah, I would say, you know, The Babadook, I thought, was a really powerful, really strong film um, that, uh, you know, I I also like The Conjuring films. I like the Insidious franchise. Uh, I usually I see everything that comes out and I try to, you know, whatever it is, I'm just looking at kind of what's going on Uh, at the same time. I love kind of revisiting old stuff that I maybe haven't seen in a while and just kind of. I like to kind of revisit things and find new stuff in them. Like Pulse, the Japanese film Pulse is one that I find myself rewatching a lot. It's just so deliciously creepy, that movie. So, yeah, I spend a lot of time with all of this.
1: <laughs> was that like, yeah, I was looking in the background. Is, are you <laughs> yeah. in your movie library right now? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. It's like my office. And then it has,
2: yeah, just nice. <laughs> you know, all the films and then the books over here. And it's just kind of, My wife refers to it as like an extension of my brain. It's just kind of this. I'm one of those people who I need to work with music and something playing on the screen. It's just I need the stimulation. So it's always a movie going on or some music playing something like that.
1: Are you a fan of actually you know, curating the physical media as opposed to downloading oh, yeah. and things like that? Yeah, I
2: am. I guess I'm just old school like that. I'll, I'll watch streaming. I have no problem with it. But I do like the tangible nature of like certainly certain box sets, just the look and feel of them. And I'm a sucker for extras. I, I really do listen to director commentaries.
1: That's what I find, too. If we ever see something even on streaming that we love, we have to go out and own it physically or it doesn't count. It seems like, right? Right. Yeah.
2: It's the same way with books. I I have no problem reading eBooks, but if I could have the actual book in my hand and smell the pages, like it just feels that much more. I mean, it is real, but it just has just more of an impact.
1: So speaking of that and and going out on your own for the first time, making arcane, which is amazing. What was the process like for you as a first time filmmaker to go out and, and do something like that?
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had, I'd want to be a filmmaker when I was in high school and just didn't see how that was possible. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. And so I kind of gave up on that idea and went in a totally different direction. And then I worked in clinical research and you had a whole career and then the, the sort of demon of creativity, like kept essentially kind of derailing the career I was thinking I was going towards because i getting ready to apply to medical school. And then I wrote a book and I derailed that. And then it is the same thing with screenwriting. So I'd been screenwriting for about eight years and, you know, it came down to selling things that never got made and the usual screenwriting story, but kind of learning the craft and figuring it out. And it wasn't until really arcane that I thought, I think I can do this. I think I can finally take what I'd been feeling and seeing in films and maybe make my own. And yeah, that was just, it was a really a labor of love. I convinced my wife to let us, let me use our savings. And I just assembled a crew here in Denver where I live. And, uh, just, it was a, uh, essentially a, uh, filmmaking camp. everything that could go wrong on the set did, (laughs) uh, which was great in hindsight because, you know, it just taught me everything. So, uh, you know, it was just right. Me trying to put my stamp on kind of what I wanted to make and kind of the, 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 the feeling of something. Um, and I was happy that it got the attention that it needed to. It was essentially led to the vigil. Tell us about conceiving the idea for the vigil. So the vigil comes from a lot of all of that other life stuff that I did before this. Um, I was in a rabbinical school. I'm not a rabbi, but I did a master's in education there. And so I'd studied theology and I love theology. Um, And in fact, while I was at the rabbinical school, I was studying uh, monsters and things in Torah not necessarily a mosaic like in this film, but, you know, Nephilim like the giants and Leviathan and those sorts of things. So it was a good combination of my interest in horror and the theology. And then afterwards I did this whole clinical research job where I actually worked in nursing homes with uh, people with dementia. So weirdly enough, the vigil combines kind of all that stuff. We've got the dementia, the elderly, we've got this Jewish theological background and then, you know, just more personal stuff in terms of, you know, an uh, in interest in kind of trauma and generational trauma, both within that community, but with just in an, in, on a universal level, just how trauma ripples through our lives and how we can or do not move through it. And it's just kind of all those themes gelled together into, into the vigil. In researching for this film, are there any stories or uh, paranormal experiences documented by people who worked as chums? You know, not necessarily as Shomers, though I did come across, you know, kind of doing a deep dive on this stuff, like the Mazik, the thing in this film is really not well known. It's a it's real. It's kind of an ancient Jewish demon. Um, But today you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who's ever heard of it, even in the religious Jewish community but I did come across other demons and other kind of strange stories that I had never heard growing up. And I certainly hadn't studied things about doppelgangers uh, in kind of Jewish mysticism, which is interesting. I studied a lot about Lilith and there's kind of this concept of Lilith as a succubus. And we've seen a lot of, you know, late night cable movies involving succubuses and Lilith, but (laughs) there's a whole nother side. There's in fact, in the ancient texts. Lilith is plural. There's Lilith theme. There's many of them. There's not just one and they have a whole different story in terms of what they're actually doing. So that was interesting stuff. And weirdly enough, while I was researching uh, early on in the development of the vigil, I had talked to a rabbi who was a demonologist and he told me about an exorcism that was recorded on an audio cassette in Israel I've never, I have never been able to track it down, but apparently it's very convincing this Jewish exorcism and they remove a dibbic an evil spirit from somebody's big toe, which wow. is kind of fascinating. Yeah. To me. Wow. Yeah. wow. I want to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So just
1: listen to it. Wow. So where did you come up with like the, the actual design of the look of the Mazik? Was mm. it based on things that you learned or did you just construct it from the ground up? I had to build it from the
2: ground up. Yeah. In the text, all it says about the Mazik, it's a Hebrew word. It means destroyer. The Mazik is said to inhabit abandoned houses. And the the warning is don't go into that old house. There could be a Mazik in there. And that's like it. That's the only description of it. So I had to come up with kind of what I wanted this thing to resemble and kind of the backstory in terms of why it's there and how it functions and what it's feeding on that sort of thing. And for me, it was important that the themes of the film and kind of what our main character is dealing with are reflected directly in this entity. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of how that design developed. And, you know, I was lucky that uh, when I'd written it, kind of the description of it, I I hadn't necessarily thought of, like, how do you actually do that? Right. (laughs) I was like, I I actually looked. It's funny. I don't think I've ever told this story, but early in (laughs) pre-production, I tried to find a guy who could turn his head all the way around. Oh Wow. And There there was like a viral video from a guy. I think he was in like Pakistan or something who could almost, it was like 90% turn around because something weird about a vertebrae in the back of his neck, but I didn't get up, end up getting him. But, but, you know, I was trying to find someone to actually do that. Um, but I was happy enough with kind of the special effects that we designed and, you know, the, 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 the entity in the film is entirely practical. And, uh, as is all almost you know
1: 99% of the effects oh that's so that awesome yeah I love how the hands are like root-like they really look <laughs> yeah, like, like. like
2: tubers I think yeah. they called it tuber tuber fingers when we were on set uh, uh-huh. and I liked I like that they looked uh yeah like root-like that it kind of a forest sort of I guess some folk horror-y kind of thing going on
0: the boo crew will be right back What happens to Nancy and Sheila in the Mansion of the Doomed is so horrifying, we can't even hint at it on this radio station. Mansion of the Doomed is so shocking, it will never appear on television. Some films you see, some you feel. You'll feel Mansion of the Doomed. You'll never forget Mansion of the Doomed.
1: How early in the process I'm interested in this? Did that iconic image of Yaakov preparing for battle with the teflon wrapped <laughs> around his arm? Yeah, how, uh-huh. like did that enter your head earlier on in the in the process? It was pretty early, and yeah. when it first appeared, it was
2: as you can probably imagine, it was very much an Evil Dead 2, uh sequence in sure. my head. I was like, how badass would it be? if he's like donning the spiritual armor and I'm doing like Dutch angle dollies right into it. And like right. we have these musical stings with each wrap of the leather. I, I moved away from that pretty quickly in terms of like, it's just not going to fit with the the overall theme and atmosphere, but I still wanted it kind of there. You know, that's just such a common and, and I think important trope of these films is that everyone loves that sort of gearing up for battle moment that happens in horror where it's like, I'm going to finally face this thing down. And so it was kind of a, when we shot it, it was an emotional moment. It yeah. was kind of, it was late in the shoot. And the tefillin that he's putting on is one of my producer's grandfathers. And so there's lots of interesting connections and emotional kind of connection. And for Dave himself it was really important that he was in the right mindset doing it. And it was just interesting in that room with Lynn and just everything happening and then when we got to score it, you know, I, I think initially the idea was, well, you should go with like violin and kind of push this. But I was like, no, no, let's we're going to lean into like some crazy electronic music and really just blow it up. <laughs> so uh, it was a lot of fun. You're into skinny puppy, right? I read that. <laughs> yeah. That's
1: awesome. Yeah, it's
2: interesting. I I have this. you know, That was my kind of high school, college background. My I mean, I still listen to industrial. Um, that's just my kind of thing. And I knew when this film was going to be set in Brooklyn that I didn't want it to feel like it was some old European soundtrack. I didn't want it to feel like classical traditional Jewish sounding like either klezmer or some sort of, you know, music like that or or folky. It's a city and I wanted to feel like a city. And to me, like industrial music is a very sort of great soundtrack uh, to that sort of thing. So I thought, and it was great because Michael Yazursky the composer, and I both Skinny Puppy fans, and uh, so we kind of. It was very easy to me, for me to say, "Hey, you remember two Dark Park? Let's go with. Uh, let's lean into that sort of
1: that vibe." And you know, I'm, I'm happy. I, I feel like it worked. That the score is great. Oh yeah, it's tremendous, and I love that sort of death alarm that is the Mazik's <laughs> signature yeah. sound. It's like whoa! It comes out of nowhere because yeah. for the most, for the rest <laughs> of the the film. Uh, In the soundtrack basically it it doesn't get in the way of the tension of the room because you're sitting there with Yakov in the room and it just kind of augments the air in the room Mm. like the score augments and rides off the air that's already in the room it's really interesting and then just slams you in the face with the Mazik theme and then it gets really beautiful and swooping in in points too it's a really really cool dynamics. Yeah, they did it. You know, Michael and the the whole sound design
2: team did a really great job for me. It was really important, even from the scripting stages, to be focused on the sound design. And, I, and in the script, I actually wrote out as much as I could of the sound design, let alone like, I would put in the playlist and songs. But it's just trying to describe, which, of course, is hard in words the sounds that you want to hear. Yeah. But it was the trick of, I know we're in a very contained space. How do you make it bigger? How do you hint at things behind walls? How do you envelop people in a certain space? And then the sound design working with the score. I always like scores where it's hard to tell what sound design and what score Yeah, like alien did that a lot. Yeah. And you hear a lot of weird electronic beep little things you assume are right. sound design, but they're actually part of the score. And then when it came time for, you know, the Mazic thing, Uh, kind of what was that sound going to be yeah that was very early we started working on it and it's a whole mess of stuff (laughs) it's like i if you were to pull it up kind of you know just looking at the layers of what's in it it's like 50 different sounds on top of each other but you know there's for example there's an ancient world war ii crank alarm that's that's in there um and then just you know just really weird uh, things that are made with kind of cast off uh, metal equipment and stuff it's it's a, it was a lot of fun kind of working on that and building that. And, you know, the Foley effects artists were great. Uh, and I, I'm really happy with how that
1: turned out. Yeah. Lots of great bone cracking effects and everything. Do you remember what yeah. you settled on to use for the, for those cracking effects? <laughs> I think there's a lot of vegetable. Yeah. A lot of vegetable
2: use. <laughs> a lot of, uh, <laughs> yeah, snapping vegetables. <laughs> and then I think there was some meat and bone actually uh, going on too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. That was Again, it's that sort of thing where you're not necessarily seeing what's happening, but the sound of it can be, you know, almost as effective. Yeah, definitely. In constructing the uh, atmosphere and scares for this movie, there are some great scenes with Yakov and the body in the background and dark shadows and Mrs. Litvak and dark hallways. What was the most challenging tension or scare scene to set up and shoot? Yeah, so the kind of core the spine of the film for me is a scene that in the script it's 17A and I'll never get that out of my head, but it was <laughs> essentially from the moment that he sits down in the chair in the house till the moment where he ends up in the kitchen. That whole sequence was essentially one scene. The trick of it was, you know, a low budget film like this you can't film chronologically, so that that scene was actually filmed in different Different days, different takes. And the trick, of course, was keeping everything consistent, knowing exactly where we left off and where we're going in terms of the feel. I have not been a showmare before, but I've spent a lot of time just alone. I've been alone with dead bodies before, and I've been just alone in terms of, uh, you know, just in a creepy old house, kind Mm -hmm. of sitting. And I, for this scene in particular, it was kind of putting myself back in that space and thinking, well, what would I have to hear or see or feel to get a response out of this or that? And then just building it, just building it and trying to increase that tension as much as I could on as many levels. Scares are so subjective. You know, it's like comedy. Some people love slapstick. Other people hate it. Um, Some people uh, appreciate jump scares. Other people don't. So I try to get as many different types of scares, some very subtle ones versus more overt ones. Kind of into that sequence and just kind of build it up so that once we got to the point where he sees the feet in the kitchen that were off to the races and there was no stopping after that.
1: Yeah, I thought that your approach to technology and how it's used in the film was really inventive and interesting. And it also, you know, obviously ended up with some great scares with it. Tell us about Mm. your approach, the, the way you wanted to approach technology with this.
2: Yeah. I mean, coming in thematically in terms of having a character who left what is essentially like a very enclosed uh, community and kind of coming out into the secular world and the outside world and kind of uh, having to deal with these things. I didn't want to avoid technology. I, I assumed Jacob would embrace it and he'd like he'd like the freedom of it. So I had to figure out how to work it in. And that's always a thing with every horror film is I call for help and you have a phone. You got to use it. So yeah. it's figuring out how you trick those things. One interesting piece was uh, the director of photography Zach Cooperstein and I decided pretty early on that we were not going to show a cell phone screen because it just it was, it's just the easiest thing to do is just sit the camera over somebody and show the screen and show what they're doing or just show a close-up of a screen. And we've seen it endlessly. So I thought if we're not going to show it ever, let's figure out ways in which we a can you know, set up a shot so we can put the text on the walls or just have it play in that way. And that would give it a little more atmosphere especially when we're going to start messing with people's heads in terms of how the phone is functioning. Right. So the phone just becomes another dark hallway that something's lurking in.
1: And it's really, I don't know, man, it's elegant. That scene when he puts on the headphones and (laughs) it's, it's immersive for the audience because we can see all around him behind him. We can see the body in the Mm. background. He's not seeing. He's got music on. It's so Frickin' cool, man. That's probably (laughs) probably our favorite scene in the film when he sits and puts those headphones on. This is just the best.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was curious about what the Psalms say about protecting Hmm. the deceased. Uh, Were they not translated in the movie because it's forbidden by Jewish tradition? Or was it your creative freedom? No, it's more creative freedom. They're the same Psalms that are, that are known in Christianity as well, the same Psalms. And they're just about comforting and respect and, you know, kind of uh, both uh, respect for life and then an understanding of death and the transcendence and those sorts of things. I decided that we were going to obviously translate the Yiddish because the Yiddish was very kind of plot focused in terms of, you know, also emotional, but the, the Hebrew for me, It wasn't so much that it's not translatable or that it's something that shouldn't be translated. It it totally is. But it just felt like, honestly, I am a big fan of the exorcist. And as a kid watching the exorcist, I didn't know the Latin, right? I didn't understand any Latin that's Mm -hmm. going on. So I wanted the same sort of thing. It it, it felt like if we keep it as Hebrew, no, a lot of people aren't going to know what he's saying, uh, what these prayers are but they'll get it. They'll get it. They'll be like, Oh yeah, he's praying. We know this, this is a, this is ritual and that this has some sort of meaning um, and that let's just leave it at that. You know, in particular as a scene in the hallway towards the end when he's got his candle, he's got the tefillin on, he's saying a prayer it's the Shema, which is one of the cornerstone prayers of Judaism, which is it's just a very, it, it, people say it hundreds of times a day. It's a very common prayer, but it was important to kind of imbue it with this sort of power and becomes this sort of strength for him. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't matter what he was saying. Just the fact that he believed in what he was saying mm. and the words.
1: Are there plans to follow Yaakov on further adventures? <laughs> yeah, we joked about a movie like called Vigils
2: or something. <laughs> uh, you know, it might be fun that <laughs> uh, producers and I have talked about, uh, you know, a, a more Jewish horror films. There's certainly enough material out there to make something. And it would be fun if it was kind of a uh, shared universe of sorts. Maybe Yaakov isn't the center of it, but appears,
1: you know, as a guide or whatever, some sort of those sorts of ideas definitely come up. Oh, those are great. And you've been linked to a new adaption of Stephen King's Firestarter for Universal. Yeah, What did that original story and film mean to you? And what's the kind Mm. of journey you want to create for us in your dive into that world? Yeah, it was a uh, book that I read in middle
2: school and that I had loved. It was one of my earliest Stephen King reads. And I I think there's a nostalgia to that. But also, I think it's great. And it was always one that didn't have the supernatural horror of like the shining and it, but had a very real grounded one um, that really appealed to me. So that's what I'm leaning into in terms of the adaptation is. It's, you know, it's not similar to The Vigil, but The Vigil, I feel like, is a visceral kind of emotional film. And the same with Firestarter, really kind of leaning into parenthood and what it means to parent a child like Charlie, uh, what it means to have powers, not in any sort of superhero sense. But if you could melt somebody's face just, you know, just by thinking about it, what would that actually mean in the real world? Not only that, but what would it look like? Mm. And, you know, I'm fully leaning into showing that. so so yeah it's fun we are excited man and one last question what
1: about a dive into a feature-length version of arcane
2: (laughs) i've got a script yeah i've got a script oh yeah Uh and uh (laughs) it it it, it was set up for a while uh and it was there was it came very close to actually happening right after i'd filmed the vigil still something i'd love to do it's you know it, it essentially that's what the eight minutes of arcane are is you know, one kind of end of first act for the larger arcane film. It's definitely, uh, it was a lot of fun to write a lot of fun to think about. Uh, if, if people dug arcane, I think they'd like kind of where (laughs) the feature goes definitely pretty, pretty hardcore. So you know, hopefully that'll, that'll come to fruition. We'll see. Oh yeah. That'd be amazing. Keith. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, we
1: don't yes. want to take up any more of your time. Thank you so much, man. We're such yes. tremendous fans of your work. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's great
2: talking to you guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you for your support. Thanks,
1: it's awesome. Hell yeah. Yep. Thank you. Cool. Have a good one, <laughs> man. Yep. yep. Take care. See ya. Okay. Bye everyone. That was the boot crew podcast episode 202. Special thanks to our guest, Keith Thomas, follow him at Keith Thomas official on Instagram and see the vigil. At time of release in select Feeders digital and VOD, February 26th. Production tracks for this episode provided by the one and only Power Man 5000. Till next time, it is the boot crew saying. Sweet screams.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation.